the crowds come. He is healing them because it is good for him to do so, but he has something better in mind. That they may be healed in order that they would be drawn and that they may hear the gospel that is proclaimed. And so seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. If we are to take just a moment this morning to consider the Sermon on the Mount 101, if you will, the synopsis, the overview, you have to consider yourself with where it takes place. Jesus has removed himself from the high council of Jerusalem. He has been ran out of Nazareth, away from the heart of Judaism, and instead to the region of Galilee, that borders on all sorts of activity with the Gentiles. And here he has gone about from place to place and synagogue to synagogue, from hillside to hillside, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but always being centered in Capernaum where he was staying. If you look at a map, you've probably got one in the back of your Bible of of the Holy Land. You will see the, the Jordan River in the middle with the Dead Sea at the bottom and the Sea of Galilee in the north. And the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater sea. It's what we would call a lake. It's about 15 miles long, north to south and about seven and a half miles wide east to west. And Capernaum sits just on the north shore. And and if you would indulge me this morning, I would tell you this, that it is the only place that I've ever visited. And for, you know, a redneck from Sebastian County, Arkansas, I've had a little bit of opportunity to travel. It is the only place that I've ever visited that I said, you know what, I could live here. Like I could actually live here. It's not just nice to visit. It's not just nice for a vacation. I could could stay here and so here it is and if you're sitting at Capernaum where the the foundations for the tabernacle or the I'm sorry for the foundations I'm still on Wednesday nights where the foundations for for the the synagogue in which he preached still stand to the south you see a crystal blue lake to your to to your right to back to the west the, the, the arid plains of Judah to your left, to the east, the Golan Heights that just shoot up like a wall and are absolutely as green as any emerald you've ever seen. And to your north, the upper Jordan, very different from the lower Jordan that is wide and meandering. It is more like the Buffalo River. It's rocky and twisty and fast cold water flowing down from the heights of Mount Hermon next to Syria that is just covered in snow. He goes up on the mount because as soon as you leave Capernaum from the edge of the sea, the mountains immediately begin to rise into into the highlands of Nephtali. And he goes up into the highlands and he prepares to teach. Luke gives us a little bit more detail than Matthew does. In in the book of Luke, in chapter 6, in verse 17 through 19, Luke writes, and he says this, that he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and to the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all of the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Matthew tells us that he went up from Capernaum onto the mount. Luke tells us that he found a level place. And if you leave out of Capernaum going north, but just a little ways, what you will find is both existing simultaneously together. A mountain terrace, what has been called for generations now the Mount of Beatitudes. And it is a fascinating little piece of geography. You would think that it would have been the ruins of a Roman amphitheater. Its shape and its curve perfectly suited for the amplification of sound. A level spot at the bottom where one can sit and teach and without hardly raising your voice, having the light breeze coming during the day off the Sea of Galilee at your back, carry it up the side of the whole mountain. It is an amazing place to be. You can literally stand down at the bottom and you can have somebody else stand at the top and the person at the top, can't, you can't hear them if you're at the bottom, but they can hear you. He sat down and he opened his mouth to a very particular audience. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says that there are two groups of people here. There are a, a general crowd, but then there are specifically his disciples. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we're not surprised that the crowds are here. They've been here continually since he began healing people. There was a great crowd with him. If you'll remember the day that, that he called his first disciples to him, such a great crowd that they were pressing him so hard against the sea, he had to get into the boats in order to be able to speak to them. No doubt there's a great crowd. Jesus responds to the crowds. But it's not the crowds that are going to be the closest to him. It's specifically his disciples that come to him. Even at this early stage and even before their salvation, we see the effectual nature of the call of God upon them for he is drawing a very particular people, what will be a very particular community, a body to himself. It is already forming. And we... Today, as the church would do well to focus preaching on the called in order that others may be called through that preaching. And Jesus doesn't go out on what we would call an evangelical crusade. Jesus goes out speaking of the things of the kingdom to those who have been called according to the kingdom and speaking about those things to them in hearing it others are being called as well the overflow of the depth of the kingdom. Generally speaking, what you will find with Christ's preaching is it does not focus on the lowest common denominator, but instead focuses on those who are seeking God and allows that to overflow to those who are not. The content of what he says to them is nothing less than the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Jesus has been speaking and what will, he will continue to speak throughout his ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, if you'll remember from just two weeks ago in verses 23 and on, it says that he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
the good news that the king reigns and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. He comes, the king himself proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the king reigns. So many people have, have looked at what is going on here in Matthew chapter 5 and with the sermon that is going to come and they've considered the parallels that exist between Christ and Moses. Here you have the, the man of God proclaiming the law of God standing upon the mountain and they've asked the question, is Christ the new Moses? And I would tell you that the answer to that, well, before I tell you the answer, let me tell you why it's important that we ask. Because what Jesus is about to say is paradigm transforming. Not only in the age that it was said, but in the ages since, the age in which we currently exist and in whatever ages are left to humanity that is to come. He's not saying anything new. As a matter of fact, he's saying something that is ancient. Something that is even older than men themselves. Something that was ancient when it was delivered by Moses to them. And that by and large they completely misunderstood. Some are going to understand this time. Is Jesus Moses 2.0? Is what he is saying here as earth-shattering and, and world-altering as the events that happened at Sinai? And the answer to that question, is he the new Moses? Is yes and no. Yes and no. Is he the new Moses? Yes. There is one that is coming after Moses. One that the Lord promised through Moses. That is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and we'll look first at verses 9 through 14 where the Lord is speaking through Moses and telling the people of Israel what they are not to listen to. And one of the things you got to love about the law, it's real straightforward. So here's, here's guys, what you're not going to listen to, and here's what you are going to listen to, and here's what the Lord says they are not to listen to. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. When you come in to the promised land, when you come in, to a portion of that land that we now call Israel, when you come into that land, don't follow after the practices of the people that live there. Instead, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. 
Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does those things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So when it comes to all of the things that the people that are inhabiting the land do, don't do that. Don't listen to those things. There's no wisdom in it. There is only death. And then the Lord says this. Here's what you are to listen to. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking. The one through which the law is delivered. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The Lord says, don't listen to what the people that you're dispossessing say. Instead, Listen to me. But they hadn't listened to him. When the Lord had spoke from on high at Horeb at Mount Sinai, when he spoke to them, so terrifying was the holiness of his voice when he spoke that the children of Israel said, Moses, you go and speak to him, but don't let him speak to us again, lest we shall surely die. And so the Lord says this, and when you're hearing it, you ought to have John chapter 1, verse 18 in the back of your mind. No one has ever seen God. But the only God, Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so here is the promise of the Christ coming to make known what they could not receive before. He tells Moses, after you, and friends, it's going to be a long time after. It's going to be 1,500 years after you. After you, I will bring another one like you. Like Him in what manner? Is Moses like Christ in glory? Absolutely not. Is Moses like Christ in righteousness? Absolutely not. Is Moses like Christ in perfection and in power and in justice? Absolutely not. And absolutely not. And absolutely not. How are they alike? They come forth bringing the word of God. The difference is that Christ brings more. Jesus is the prophet like Moses who is to come. If you're confused about that, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 3, in verses 13 through 23, where after the healing of a man while speaking in Solomon's portico, in verse 13, Peter says, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So here is the example of the healing that comes from faith in Christ. And now that that has been established... Listen to the truth that it testifies to. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then he says this, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. Is Jesus the new Moses? Is Jesus the prophet to come that was like Moses in the declaring of the law? Yes, he absolutely was. He absolutely is, and Peter confirms it. Well, there you go. Is Jesus the new Moses? Yes. Is Jesus the new Moses? No. No, he's not. Jesus is not simply another Moses. He is different. Fundamentally and gloriously different. At Sinai... God came down on the mountain. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up. At Sinai, God set barriers and said the people at Mass could come this close but no further, that there would be separation between him and them. And yet Jesus not only allows them but encourages the crowds to draw near. It says he specifically went up on the mountain to sit down and teach because he saw the crowds and his disciples came with him. Or at Sinai, the voice of God terrified them. Outside of Capernaum, the voice of God teaches them what happened at Sinai began with great glory that quickly faded. The glory that faded so quickly, it says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't have to witness the glory of God shining from it, fading away. But what happens here begins with humility and the condescension of Jesus Christ to come in the flesh 
and to teach men that are flesh. But what begins with humility will result in an ever-increasing glory that is incomparable and never fades. You see, Jesus is the new Moses in that he comes proclaiming the law of God, but he is not the new Moses because he is different because he is more. He's always more. And guys, if there is one thing, if there's one thing out of this sermon that you can get to stick in your heads this morning that is going to kind of provide a, a, a lodestone, a, 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 a compass needle as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, it is this, that when Jesus comes, he's more, and the word that he is speaking and the law that he is proclaiming requires more, not less. You see, what Jesus comes and speaks is no new law. As a matter of fact, it's one of the key precepts of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look down the page in chapter 5 of Matthew all the way to verse 17 through 18, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is why we're taking the time to do this this morning, because you've got to be careful. There are people that will look at the fulfillment of the prophecy about a prophet coming forth like yourself out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, and they will look at that and they say, okay, Moses brought the law where there was no law, and then they will come and they will look at the fulfillment of that prophecy according to Peter out of Acts chapter 3, and they'll look to the Sermon on the Mount and say, okay, that was the old law, and here is the new law. And Jesus says it is nothing of the sort. It's nothing of the sort. Man, that kind of dispensational dribble has no place in the gospel of the kingdom. You know why? Because the king reigns and the king doesn't change. It has no place. Jesus himself within the sermon denies that would be the fact. He says something much bigger, much grander, and much more hopeful. The funny thing to me is when you look at people that are making the argument that here was the old Moses and here was the old law, and now here's the new Moses in Christ, the fulfillment of that prophecy, and even a better Moses, and he brings a better law. Guys, the problem with that is, is when they do that, they're not doing it out of intellect. It's plain on the page. They're doing it because they're looking for comfort. And the problem is, is by taking the things of God into the hands of the flesh, they seek a comfort that will never be comforting. They seek relief that will never actually bring them relief. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. Because let me tell you something. You know what the problem with the law is? You say, well, I know the answer to that. I've been hearing it for years. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is man. Amen. That is correct. So, but, but let me tweak the, the question a little bit. What is the problem with the law for man? So, so not just generally speaking. The law is perfect. The law is righteous. The law is good. He who does it will live by it is what scripture says. The problem is, is that men don't do it. 
And so the problem's not the law, the problem is man. Okay, but let's tweak it. What, what's the problem? What's the issue with the law as it regards man? And the reason I want to ask that is because I am one. And so are you. And so we have a lot of skin in this game. This matters to us. Because it's our eternal souls that hang in the balance. The problem with the law for fallen man is that the law had not yet been fulfilled. And Christ says, man, I didn't come to bring a different law. None of this law will pass away. Why would we think that? You understand that the, 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 the logical construction behind the idea that the law of God would change forces you into a corner to admit that God is not perfect. That is by default what you're saying. If the law of God truly changes, then God is not perfect. He didn't get it right the first time. The fact of the matter, he did get it right the first time. It's simply that its fulfillment was not yet complete. Jesus Christ came to make an unknowable God known by fulfilling a law that man could not fulfill. And he did it perfectly not one jot not one iota not one would slip why because the gospel of the kingdom is the good news that the king reigns and this is the king's law and the king reigns and so the law is going to stand and the king himself will fulfill it which is why he says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does teach them and teaches them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What we see here is not a new law. What we see here is the fulfillment of the law. The revelation and the understanding of it. A thing that was a mystery that was hidden in ages past that Jesus Christ is now revealing in such a way that men can see and feel and touch and smell and understand. It's what Paul spoke about in Ephesians chapter 3 in verses 7 through 10 where he says of this gospel... Of this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. For to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the, what is the gospel? Here it is, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Paul says, look, here's the nature of the gospel. It is a nature that is being proclaimed. It is a, it is a nature that is unfolding. For the law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to replace the law. He came to fulfill it. There was something about the law that the previous generations didn't get. There was something that was hidden. There was a mystery that was at work that is now being revealed 
and having been revealed will be fulfilled. Is that not why John said he came baptizing? So that the Messiah might be revealed in Israel. And now that he's been revealed, what does he say? Here's the good news. The king reigns. It's not a new law. There was more in the law than you ever dreamed. Oh man, you've got, you've got your rabbis and you've got your Sanhedrin and you've got your Pharisees, your lawyers and, and your Sadducees. You've got your high priests and they pour over this thing day and night because they believe that in it is an eternal life. And they're right. They just don't know what they're looking for. There is more here than you can fathom a mystery hidden in ages past, but now revealed to his saints. The Sermon on the Mount is a glimpse into the fullness and the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks about it like this. In verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ our God, or through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now you read that right off the bat, and the first thing you think to yourself is, well, maybe, maybe, you're not on the right foot about this continuation of the law did. Man, Paul is talking about this as there was a glory that was there and it was decreasing. Now there's a glory that is going to be increasing. There was something there that was temporary. Now there's going to be something that is permanent. How do these things work out? The way they work out is this. The law, simply in its statement of righteousness, was never designed to be the permanent end. That is why it needed to be fulfilled it was going somewhere. The law spoken by Moses brought death. The fulfillment of that law by Christ will bring life. The evangelizing church would do well to remember that today. Because all too often today, the evangelizing church wants to preach a gospel that brings life without a law first that brings death. And what you get when you do that, is no life whatsoever. It has to be this way. 
This is the way the Lord designed it. This is the way that it was delivered. Buddy, you better believe there is a law carved in stone that shows you what your death is. And there is a fulfillment in Jesus Christ, not in stone, but by blood, that brings life to you through a mystery that was hidden in ages past, but is now being revealed. Not the destruction of this law, but the fulfillment of it. And so Paul says this. He says, since we have such hope, hope in the written word of the command? No, in the hope of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, we are very bold. Not like Moses. Now, man, is that a cool statement or what? Man, if you're going to say, hey, we're very bold, not like Chicken Little, that makes sense. Moses seemed to me, I mean, look, Moses isn't perfect. He had his moments where he was like, oh, Lord, don't send me, send somebody else and all that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, dude's pretty bold. Holding out your staff over the raging Red Sea with the Egyptian army, literally driving chariots down your back, pretty bold thing to do. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about boldness in the certainty of what God is going to do as the promise progresses. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses didn't want to see it waning. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is spirit. And when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. It's not a new law. It's the fulfillment of the law. The giving of the law in the written word of command brought death and declining glory. The fulfillment of the law in the blood of Jesus Christ by the Spirit will bring life and increasing glory. What Jesus is preaching at the Sermon on the Mount will affirm the promise and answer the question that was posed by the prophet Malachi. The promise that came to Malachi from God was this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And so it's not just a statement about God's immutability. When, when the Lord speaks to Malachi in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, he says to him, look, I don't change, but that's not just a fact that you need to know to be able to pass Bible trivia. I don't change, and because I don't, you, Jacob, are not consumed. The promise to you that came in the law was sufficient. You don't understand it. You see it as declining. You see it as fading. 
It is a mystery that was hidden in ages past. But I don't change. And because God doesn't change, therefore His people are not consumed. But then there is a question. It's not just that it affirms the promise. It also answers the question that would be asked next because the very next thing that the Lord says in Malachi chapter 3 verse 7 is this, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. You failed the law and I'm not going to change it for you. I don't change. The law doesn't change. Christ didn't come to change the law. I'm not going to change it for you. What I'm going to do is fulfill it for you. You've not kept them. So here's the plea of God to Israel. Return to me and I will return to you. Now that sounds awesome. Man, here's the law. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. And in its, in, in its unfulfilled state, the law brings death. The glory is fading. Where are, the, where are the glories of Sinai? You better believe there's some Israelites that are asking themselves today that question. Right now. You better believe they were asking it last Saturday when their infants were being slaughtered. Where is the glory of Sinai? Where is the God that speaks and the earth shakes and the nations melt before him? They're asking that. They were asking it in Malachi. He says, look, you want to know where I am? You departed from me. I didn't depart from you. I don't change. I don't move anywhere. Here I am. You left me. And yet, because I don't change, you're not consumed. So return to me. Come back. What an offer. What an offer. You want, the, you want the good news of the kingdom that the king reigns this morning? Man, I'll tell it to you. The king is reigning on high. You have deserted him. He has every right and justice to destroy you for it if you're not a believer. And he says, if you'll just come back to me, I'll take you. Come on. That's the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is good because the king that reigns is good. And so here he is. He says, man, you've left me. I told you, don't follow after these people. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. Listen to the prophet that I sent. And I sent him to fulfill the law. And you, you, you violate the law and, and, and you don't run to him for fulfillment. And, and if you would just come back. So in Malachi, you have a, a promise that is affirmed. I don't change and so you're not consumed. And then you have a question that's asked. And the question is right here at the end of verse 7. After he says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? How shall we return? Have you ever felt that way? We've ran too far. We've done too much. We've run after Baal and... We've run after Asherah and we've run after Molech and we've gone too far. How shall we return? Jesus is telling them in Matthew chapter 5 how to return. For everything that is recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, grammatically speaking, is simply the detailed exposition of the overall statement out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. 
from that time, Jesus began to preach. All of his preaching contained this, including the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you, how do you return, Israel? How do you return? You repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The reality is this. If you have a law that in its giving was sufficient to bring about the condemnation of sin unto death. But this law was not complete. And it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ in such a way that it ceases being the condemnation unto death, but instead becomes the gospel that leads to life. All without the law ever ceasing. If that's true, if in the first portion where the mystery was hidden, it brought death, but once fulfilled in Christ, in its fullness, it brings forth life. If before it was a glory that was declining, but now is a glory that is increasing and will be permanent, then it's a whole lot more on the backside than it was on the front side. The law fulfilled by Jesus Christ is bigger and grander and requires more than the law standing alone unfulfilled at Sinai. Or to put it another way, the law fulfilled by grace always requires more and not less than the law left unfulfilled by works. Man, we've got to get that right. We've got to get it right. Because all too often, in looking for comfort, people abandon the law of God and think that Jesus Christ brought a new law. And in doing so, they bring great injury, possibly even death to themselves. People want to look for something that's easy. I would tell you that Jesus Christ demands the impossible. And then by the might of his own power provides what is necessary so that it may be true that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And Jesus is going to open his mouth and he's going to teach him. He's going to teach him about salt and light. His fulfilling of the law, matters of desire, whether it be lust or divorce or oaths or retaliation or love for one's enemies. He's going to teach him about sacrificial giving and how to pray. He's going to teach him about how to fast, where to store up their treasure, remedy for the evil of anxiety that still plagues so many of us today and the fact that you're not the judge. He's going to tell them to ask the Lord and receive. He'll teach them the golden rule that doing springs forth from being, that there are those that he knows and those that he doesn't. He will teach them 
about the security of his people's foundation. But he begins like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the way it begins. It is deeper than the seed that he stood before when he proclaimed it. This is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom that the king reigns. It's not a new law. It's what the law always was and men were too dense to understand it. Its glory is not fading and it does not bring death. Its glory is increasing and it brings life. It is the affirming of the promise that God doesn't change and therefore you are not consumed and it answers the question, how do we return? Man, if you're asking that question this morning, the answer is repent. Run to Christ. Place your faith in him and all that he says. Look, it's not going to be easy. The law fulfilled by grace requires more, not less. The good news is, is he's the one that's fulfilled what it requires. And in grace, he's given it to me and he will give it to you. He will. Ask him. Let's pray.